We're back. Another Dishcast. We've been having a lot of big thinkers on the Dishcast lately. And we've got a really big one today. Someone I've been reading on and off for a couple of decades, I think, if I were to have any memory left. He's a British journalist, David Goodhart, but that doesn't really uh, tell you much about him. In 1995, he founded Prospect, which I think was sort of a center-left magazine, a bit New Republic-y, but monthly. And he served there as editor for 15 years, after which he became the director of Demos, which is a cross-party think tank. He then, in his evolution of thinking, wrote a book called The, the Road to Somewhere, where he kind of reimagined left-right politics as conflict increasingly between what he called anywheres and somewheres, people who could easily live anywhere and those who were attached to a particular place and sometimes a particular time. And the conflict that that has brought that crept up on us and that led to populism and its response and the current cycle of intense polarization which we are experiencing currently in the U.S., but the main reason I want to uh, talk to him is he also has a, a book which he brought out in the pandemic called Head, Hand, Heart, The Struggle for Dignity and Status in the 21st Century. And uh, it's about the ways in which human beings work, the way in which we, we live, the way in which our brains, our head are important, but also our ability to interact with other human beings and also our mastery of our own physical environment. Uh, those three things have gotten out of whack, he would argue, in our current culture and economy, and he's trying to figure out where to start finding a better balance in the West. That's an incredibly crude and, and brief introduction, David, but I hope I haven't done massive violence no. to your general theses. We will get into, <laughs> we will get into all the details yeah. of it. For, is, is, is that okay? No, no, it's a good summary, and and thank you for inviting me on. I'm a big fan of the program. Well, thank you. I we would you've just touched say... on a lot of these. You've touched on all of these issues in in recent discussions with Johan Harry, with Nicholas Christakis, uh, and and others. So I, I think it's part of a, one of your themes. I hope. Yeah, well, it's the central theme of our time. I think trying to figure out what populism is, trying not to suddenly lapse into one side of this question rather than the other and try and see how we can drag something constructive out of the conflicts that we're in. We were just before we started going on the air, we talked a little bit about how from where we were, the two of us in our sort of late teens or early twenties politics, it's weird because I think there's been a sort of weird divergence and then a kind of coming together and, and, and tell us, Tell us your evolution. Like, where did you, by the way, where did you grow up? How, how, what part of England did you grow up in? And school? Well, I, I'm from London originally. When I mentioned that we're sort of, we're sort of opposites that have, have met in the middle, I meant it almost more sociologically than intellectually. At the age of 22, I was a kind of slightly ridiculous upper class Marxist, and you were a working class Thatcherite. <laughs> Yeah. And we both sort of converged on the centre from from those different, but rather different, both ideological and sociological 
starting points. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I was born in London. I was actually born, I'm a bit older than you. I was born at the time of Suez. I was born in September 1956 into an upper-class, actually Anglo-American family. I'm technically half American now. I've got two American grandfathers. Both of my parents were half American. I'm half American in a rather weak sense. I'm, I'd be more I'd be more American if I had one parent who was fully American. Soon after I was born, my dad became Tory MP. I'm one of seven children. I went through the the kind of conventional upper class. Went to prep school when I was seven and a half. Went to public school. I went to the famous four letter one. I then I kind of woke from a rather kind of long conformist, sleepy childhood at the age of 17 and became a kind of kind of Eton rubble, a slightly half-hearted one, partly because I failed to get into the Eton College first 11 cricket team. I think it was the first setback in my life. So I spent quite a lot of time smoking dope and listening to the Grateful Dead. I therefore failed my A-levels, retook them at a, at a crammer in London and scraped into Kent University where I was for a year and basically hung out with the Marxists and, and actually had rather an unpleasant time. The Marxists weren't fun to be with. Really? Uh, not, not at Kent at that time, anyway. Um, <laughs> Kent Marxist, does, yeah. it doesn't summon up sort of well, bright-headian revelry, does it? <laughs> well, 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 actually, a lot, of the, a lot of them went on to people like Claire Fox and uh, Frank oh. Faraday. It was, it was actually the origins of this famous little... A little sort of ginger group in British politics who moved from the far left. It was at that time in Kent. It was the Revolutionary Communist Group, and they they were very very ultra theoretical group who they just sat around reading Capital Volume Three. It was all about the organic composition of capital, so far, so far as I recall, and that was going to lead to the crisis of profitability of capitalism and everything was going to collapse. And they they, they then was, sort of, they still believe that in the 70s, the 90s. This were, would have been in the, yeah, this was the kind of mid 70s. Yeah. Oh, they, yeah. And it, wow. But I actually, though, I fought, fortunately, I, one of the best decisions of my life, I, I left Kent after a year and, and went to York. I started again at York. In those days, it was kind of, once you were in the university system, it was relatively easy to move. I would never have got into York with my not very good A-levels, but uh, I managed to get in. And I'd already had a year of, sort of practice of being a student, so I, I was much more confident. And But I, I, was, I was very much into sort of left-wing student politics. And and like I say, I mean, I can look back on it now and sort of think how ridiculous I was. You know, I mean, I, uh, you would have had absolute contempt for me as, as, you know, I would have been like one of those sort of upper-class Balliol Marxists. Well, right? I love hanging out with that. I mean, I had lots of... <laughs> people who are yeah. Italian Marxist and yeah. but that was part of the joy of, of yeah. going there. But, I, just it was a yeah. small thought. I, yeah. I don't, this is ridiculously English. I, I wouldn't call myself. I don't want to let it pass. I'm. Not, I don't think I come from a working class. And as much as no, okay. I think my yeah. my my father was a was a white white collar, just not just basically managerial class. Yeah. We didn't actually work with our hands right. as such. Although my you know my my grandparents and as long history of also of, of joining the army and or laboring because a lot of my peeps <laughs> come from the mm. west coast of ireland mm. those beautifully sunny elysian fields that they live in over there but anyway mm. i'm 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 distracting so after well, your period of marxism you 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 begin to develop some some well, uh, antibodies uh, yeah <laughs> Yeah, it was reading John Strachey and Tony Crossland and the and the and the and the, and the, and the great social democratic writers. I think that I kind of I sort of argued my way out of it. I, mean, I had I mean I'm sort of dis, disparaging of my 
then self uh, in many ways. But but actually, I don't really regret having been through the sort of you know the intellectual nursery of Marxism. You know, it's a bit like people sometimes talk about the classics as a, as a sort of intellectual gymnasium and and learning how to argue and and you know if you're a young marxist you have to have a theory about everything i mean it basically got me interested in ideas and and obviously i don't regret that at all but after after york i i went and worked on the local newspaper i did a proper old-fashioned newspaper apprenticeship and then by a pure stroke of luck uh, a friend of my then girlfriend came to stay after i'd been on the York Evening Press for a couple of years and she was working on the Financial Times and she mentioned that there was a vacancy coming up in the Labour Department of the Financial Times. I'd barely heard of the Financial Times. I mean, I knew there was this kind of esoteric pink paper that that was read by business people and financiers. Anyway, I very quickly became a bit more expert on the Financial Times and fortuitously, this was 1982 and you may, you may remember there was, well, there's a union, there still is a union called ASLEF. It's one of the very few unions that hasn't merged, at least I think when I last looked, hasn't merged into a sort of super union. It's still known as, by, by the acronym ASLEF, it's the Rail Drivers Union. And the head of the union is a guy called Ray Buckton who came from York. And to my great benefit, he called a national rail driver's strike at the end of 1981. And knowing that there was this vacancy possibly awaiting me on the in the labor room of the Financial Times writing about trade union affairs, I I volunteered to cover the strike. Nobody else was particularly it, it wasn't a big enough evening paper to have a specialist industrial reporter. So I volunteered and I went I went and interviewed people on the picket lines and I didn't actually interview Ray Buckton, I don't think, but uh, York's quite a big railway town. I was then so I so I had some sort of industrial reporting cuttings and and I got a early eighty two I did get that job on the FT. On That's the a F- lovely obsolescent obsolete word, isn't it? Cuttings. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Cutting like, cuttings is what you used to get. You 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 would you would if you were a young reporter, you would get a story and then you would cut yeah. it out of yeah. the paper and you'd have a file of these stories that you would then hand over to prospective employers. Um I, it's I was watching there's this there's this um show on Apple TV called Shining Girls, which is really good actually, but it it's based in a newspaper in around that era, and you suddenly oh. see the amount of paper, just the sheer yeah. huge amounts of paper, and also these vault the only records they had was their own paper, right so they they had an entire vault of all clippings, all filed under the same subject matter, all, and then you would ask someone, ask a human being, could you call up the clippings on, I don't know, this, that, or the other? And they would go into the stacks, basically, and come out with this little pack of little cuttings from, Mm. from, from, I remember, I remember walking, being told, when I walked, I worked with the Daily Telegraph as an intern back then, and walking into that room, and it was, it was magnificent. Yeah, uh, the smell, but, but it, it, <laughs> the smell, the sense of the sense of history, the meticulousness with which they had cut all these little mm. things out and put them all in their little books. It was it was amazing. Of course, the the, the web is a much more powerful. Well, I can't imagine how they wrote their bloody stories. Yeah. I mean, it's so easy now. You know, you mm. just go online, you you absorb masses amount of information already out there about any subject on earth, and then you start doing your own shit, right? Then you had to really have a hard time. I'm getting 
off our subject here, but, yeah, but... The productivity is uh, in this area, you know, ought to have increased, you know, exponentially. Uh, I still use the phrase sort of, it's in the cuttings, you know, something about you, often something you don't like, you know, it's kind of out there, it's it's in the cuttings. Once it's in the cuttings, you sort of can't take it out, whether it's true or false. Anyway, where is that? So I was, yeah. Yes, you're, 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 I'm, I'm you're at the FT. into a, you're, you're now, how did you get to be editor of Prospect? How did that? Well, happen? so I was on the FT for 12 years. That's where I met my now ex-wife, Lucy Kellaway, who was also on the FT, with whom I've had four kids. Uh, I, I was very lucky. I was kind of in the right place at the right time for lots of big stories. So I joined on the Labour desk, as I said. We had a whole page in those days, just of Labour news, you know, of wage negotiations, strikes, trade union politics. It was the kind of just the final spasms of of, of labour power in, in the UK, and I covered the I covered the miners' strike. Covered the I actually wrote a book about Eddie Shah and the newspaper revolution. Do you remember Eddie Shah? He was like the forerunner of Rupert Murdoch bypassing the unions in the print industry um, for the final battle. I was, I was there. there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I then I kind of moved over to the city side just after Big Bang, when the you know the city was had these huge takeover bits were happening. I was actually on the Lex column, the most terrifying job of my life. It was the there was very little financial commentary at that time, and the FT was the absolute the back of the FT had this little column called the called the Lex column, two hundred and fifty. You only had to write two hundred and fifty words, but they were meant to be you know hugely authoritative about trends mm. in the bond market or you know uh, GEC's quarterly you know, quarterly results or whatever and I, I was completely out of my depth I, I'd basically just ring up all the city analysts and pick their brains and then sort of mush it all together and pretend it was my original thought <laughs> uh, but you know you moved markets on the let's call them in those days anyway fortunately I, I escaped from that after a year or so but I went to Germany Nobody, this was kind of mid-87, towards the end of 87, the number two job in Bonn, West Germany then, was regarded as the kind of the most boring job on the kind of international... Bonn? Boring? Correspondence (laughs) circuit. Uh, And I'd only been on the paper five or six years, so I was kind of in, in a way too junior to qualify for the privilege of being a foreign correspondent. But nobody else wanted to go, so they, in the end they had no choice but to send me. <laughs> and then, of course, you know, eighteen months later, or even a year later, the whole the whole of Germany becomes the biggest story in the world. Uh, so you walked backwards into the biggest story in British politics, which was the war over the labour unions yeah. <laughs> at exactly the right time, yeah. and then you backed into the end of the Cold War. Yeah, but anyway, but covering covering a world historic event like German unification, I sort of. It kind of turned my head slightly. I thought, you know, I don't want to spend the next sort of 15 years becoming features editor of the FT or whatever it might have been. I was never going to be the editor of it. And I'd always thought there was a, a gap in the market for a kind of essay-based monthly magazine. I, I was kind of modelled it probably more on the Atlantic than anything else. But you had all of these wonderful American magazines and journals and New York Review books and New Yorker, Harper's, the New Republic, your New Republic. Interesting. What a what a beautiful. Yeah. I mean, it was amazing. And, Magazine culture in America was incredibly rich and diverse yeah. and and smart. I mean, one of the things that you what was most impressive coming over was just how elevated that intellectual discourse was. How it seemed to take the world seriously in a way that Britons had basically stopped. There, there was something about journalism in Britain that was sort of so over everything that nothing really mattered 
anymore. Yeah, yeah, I and, love that and, earnestness. I, I love that earnestness about going to Germany too. I mean, after a while, the earnestness. Well, they're connected, forward. of course. Yeah, exactly. German, yeah. German yeah. earnestness has definitely fueled American. American yeah, think. absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the German and bloody Swedish. PhD. Yeah, yeah, it's the yeah. most earnest thing imaginable. Yeah. <laughs> and no. we all have to do it thanks to the Germans. Yeah. So but, this magazine, what did you want to do with it? Well, I, I wanted it to become the British version of Atlantic Monthly. Uh, and I, okay. and one of the things that I, I, you know, I mean, I used to devour all those American magazines and journals. And of course, I noticed that half the people writing for them were Brits. Um, well, I yeah. know. It was great. Yeah. It I mean, was, yeah, we had all these Brits. We had all these great essay were writers. running them. Yeah, well, yeah absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, I started Prospect in 95, just as you were coming to the end, I think. Of, uh, we used right, to actually yeah. buy stuff from you. Je I mean, James, well, maybe after your time, actually, James Wood used to write those lovely literary oh, yeah. essays in the New Republic. We, we used to buy them and then cut them by about half. <laughs> uh, well, you know, Leon would let people write forever. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And it uh, was often, often fruitful. Yeah, yeah, often sometimes not quite as fruitful, but not. Less. But no, I mean, I, I kind of want to, you know, you get that that combination of, you know, you'd sit down with a piece in the New York or the New York of your books on something that you didn't think you were interested in, you know, the great cathedrals of 17th century Europe or whatever, and you know, and you'd you'd be lost in a sort of you know sensual reader enjoyment for. Yeah. half an hour and you'd come away knowing something about the world that you hadn't known before and i wanted i, I wanted to do that and I, we did didn't i i didn't really quite succeed but we we you know we gave uh, i gave it a pretty good go for 15 years and we did produce something it still exists it still, no. it still exists right Does it alan, exist? yeah. alan rusbridger the former guardian editor has just become editor of it so which i'm quite happy about i mean it's not i mean i evolved it into something that was you know, somewhat contrarian. I mean, it was, as you said at the beginning, it was a sort of left of centre-ish. You know, we welcomed, we were seen as part of the kind of vaguely part of the kind of new Labour world. And, and we certainly supported Blair when he was elected in 97. But actually, I mean, I had the advantage of, because it was seen as sort of on, on the centre-left, you know, as a broadly liberal magazine, it was it was a good platform from which to kind of investigate and in, and critique you know the some of the shibboleths of contemporary liberalism, and I did that <clears throat> myself actually. And what has sort of propelled me? I mean, probably the main reason I am talking to you today is because in in one of the I think it was February two thousand and four edition of Prospect, I wrote an essay called Too Diverse Question Mark, which was reprinted almost entirely in the Guardian, five or six thousand words basically arguing that there is a tension and it was very much directed at my own then political sort of left liberal tribe there is a tension between that these two desirable goals of, of diversity and solidarity i mean based on the common sense assumption that people are ready to share with and trust people they have something in common with i mean they, they don't have to be the same ethnicity or religion but you, you know you need some some shared experience some shared norms in order to, you know, open your heart and your and your wallet to them, um, and that is why famously, you know, very homogeneous countries in in let's say Scandinavia for a long yeah. time, not so much today, but but when they, they had by far the strongest welfare states, and the the argument, of course, was that America was the counterfactual because of African Americans and the inheritance of that, which meant that a lot of white 
white Americans did not regard a welfare state as benefiting them, but as going to some other group that they thought were unworthy. And that, that diversity, of, that racial diversity actually weakened the sense of solidarity, which made a, well, a strong welfare state workable in terms of public opinion, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, this hasn't yet come about. I mean, I think it's it's kind of there beneath the surface. I mean, one of the contrasts I pointed to was that between Sweden and Denmark, obviously, historically speaking, what you're seeing you know, sort of Scandinavia, sort of Scandinavia versus the US, but but actually, that there's we have a living laboratory now in in Northern Europe. Both countries started say go back to the late eighties, early nineties, nineties. Both countries. Very, Which of the two countries we're talking sorry, about? Sweden Which, and Denmark. Sweden, Sweden and Denmark. Yeah, both very ethnically homogeneous back in the early nineties. Yeah, with, with both very very social democratic, very compressed income differentials and so on. Very big welfare states. In the meantime, one of the two countries, the one that I'm sitting in now, Sweden. I mean, Uppsala, Sweden, has become. It, it's opened its doors pretty wide to immigration most notably recently in 2015, but, but prior to that too. So the, the, the foreign-born population in Sweden is, is, is about 15%. It is quite ethnically divided. I actually just a couple of days ago, I went to, there was a football match just around the corner from here. I heard that I was just cycling by and I heard, heard sort of chants of a football crowd. And, and so I went in and it turned out to be a team called Dal Kurd. They were playing in this big, big stadium i mean it was about a tenth full admittedly they are an ethnic kurdish football team playing in the second professional division in sweden and i was i was sort of i thought you know what you know what an incredibly segregated country to have ethnically segregated football teams although i i would say in the in defense of, of sweden that actually the dalkurd kurdish football team had ethnic swedes and people of African descent playing for it. So it was kind of probably about two-thirds Kurd. But almost all the crowd was Kurdish. They were there with their drums and sort of shouting Kurdish and Swedish. You know. I mean, yes, it's they're still separate, but they're, it's, it's football, which is, you know, an incredibly unifying thing in Europe. It's what every boys of every country and nationality want to do right yeah and it's been a great integrator it's been a great integrator yeah. in, in 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 britain for example have you seen in in sweden a decline in support for the welfare state well as, i mean that, 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 that's what i mean i mean i think there's enough kind of enlightened self-interest that can sustain it at least for a period so you know sweden now has a few uh, sweden has also fully embraced a kind of a, a sort of separatist multiculturalism, as as illustrated by Dalkurd. I mean, there are whole regions of, of of cities that are entirely ethnic minority and entirely white. So, yeah, Denmark, on the other hand, has you know, decided it it's it, it immigration increased a bit in the nineties, and and it basically decided it didn't really like this. So it has, you know, despite being a European Union member state and so on, it's done everything it can to restrict immigration. And it's gone to the extent that it does have immigration. It's gone for a very, very integrationist approach. You know, the opposite of multiculturalism. So, so the people from other backgrounds who arrive in Denmark have to you know, go. Through, you know, they have to learn Danish you know, and 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 get thoroughly integrated into the system. So you would expect, you know, if if this if this tension is a real one, you'd expect, you know, in another ten or fifteen years' time, the Danish welfare state to be a lot more generous than the Swedish one. Is there any evidence that's happening yet, or that, that the direction is in that way? 
To be quite honest, I don't know. I mean, I think not okay. so far, but I think, yeah, but we will see. So where does this notion that diversity, racial and ethnic diversity is actually hurting solidarity and, and left-wing values? Well, I think you can see it in 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 populism in some ways. You know, populism. But are there studies that show this? Where is the correlation here? I think the kind of the it's sort of the retreat from the public realm. I think more than mm -hmm. more than a financial thing so far. You know, you know, reflected in the belief that the that you know the people who who run politics and dominate our society so universalist that they don't they don't have sufficient respect for national citizenship I mean, I, and I, I don't mean that in a, in a nativist or ethnocentric way i mean there are there are sort of people at the more extreme end who do think in those terms but i think you know the average sort of provincial you know english or british voter i think ha has a feeling that and i think it should be true in sweden too that that their own as it were, prior claim on uh, you know, both resources and kind of the attention of the ruling class is is diminished by 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 large and over rapid immigration. What yeah, so you've just what you've just what you what you've also asked a question, it seems to me, which some of those people are asking, which is why is diversity preferable to homogeneity? I mean, that question is sort of underlying what you've been, and you do talk about that in your Somewheres and Nowheres book. But what's interesting is that when you raise just that philosophical question, that is, that is evidence that you are a fascist yeah. in well, the United States. That is well, evidence that you are a neo-Nazi. Absolutely. Well, you even, even raise the question of whether there is some inherent virtue in diversity as opposed to homogeneity. Yeah. No, well, I mean, this was back in two thousand and four, and when when my piece was printed in the Guardian, I mean, I you know, I was we didn't have the word then, but I was kind of cancelled. <laughs> I mean, you know, lots of people accused me of being a racist, including a man who is now a good friend of mine, Trevor Phillips, who who said something like, you know, nice people. I, know, I think he called me a liberal power light. <laughs> well, he said nice nice people can do racism too. I mean, I was basically, it was a quite an abstract, I reread it the other day, it's a very kind of gentle, rather abstract raising of this kind of problem, you know, something that we on the left should be wary of and should worry about, which is why it's important to, that, that, that we, we emphasise what... Where did, where did it come from originally? I'm always, I'm kind of interested, like in the 60s and 70s, for example, in Britain. Now, in America, it's, it's different, but it did happen post-1965 in a way it hasn't happened before in terms of non-European immigration to the United States, which took off after the 1965 immigration act. But what were the elites thinking? Were they thinking, well, we know that racism is wrong, and so therefore we have to, it would be great for us, especially former colonial powers, to actually allow for a more racially diverse society, and that would somehow make us, and then there was this sense in the 90s, for example, with Blair, that there was something positively virtuous about uh, a diversification strategy for a country. And you see that also in Justin Trudeau, for example, in Canada, where you have an aggressive attempt to erase any sense of an ethnic majority to mm. create a truly multicultural state in which the person who has just arrived has absolutely, there is no distinction to be made between him and someone who might live there, their family lived mm. there for you know hundreds of years. 
I mean, I, I mean, I think this is this is a point that sort of almost sort of marries my two books, The Road to Somewhere and Head, Hand, Heart, in that I think it, what you're talking about derives, I think, very much from a sort of anywhere. It's somewhere and anywhere, by the way, not somewhere and nowhere. Everyone always calls it nowhere. <laughs> um, you, know, uh, uh, you know, the anywhere worldview is based around openness, mobility, autonomy, tends to be anti-authority, tends to be anti-tradition. The universities in, in the Western world are great centers of this worldview. And it, it, it's a sort of, it, it's a perfectly understandable worldview for highly educated people. You know, highly educated people have a kind of interest in the free flow of ideas and the free, the free flow of ideas kind of spills over into the free movement of people. They, they tend to have a rather negative view of their own national traditions and i think it was when when this group you know sort of coming out of the 60s and the 70s when this group kind of moved its way through the institutions and came to you know like in the blair era in the uk or in the clinton era in, in the us the these values became the dominant values of society and i think that that is you know and it was there was an overshooting of a kind of legitimate liberalism i think it wasn't you know like so many of so many of the things we're talking about are kind of overshoots of one kind or another. And I think... Well, it's true that certainly in terms of the UK, the sheer pace of immigration in... in after se- 97, years, after 97, yeah. yeah. After 97 yeah. Uh, is, is, has been really staggering and in a way that has never been experienced in Britain before. I mean, it's, it's a staggering thing to me that almost 40% of Londoners were not born in the United Kingdom. Yeah. which is, it's pretty normal for New York City as an mm. entrepot to the vast United States. But for a, an offshore island, that's a hell of a lot of people showing up yeah. uh, and, and, to be uh, integrated. Absolutely. And the the other, so, so you know, if, if anywhere's, you know, anywhere values and somewhere values are both in their mainstream form perfectly legitimate, the, the problem has been that anywhere values have become over-dominant. Uh, and also... What one of the other aspects of the kind of anywhere worldview that I talk about is that that anywheres tend to have what what are, what are called achieved identities. I mean, it, it, I think it's the U.S. sociologist Tolkien Parsons, incredibly boring sociologist, who tried to produce a sort of chemistry textbooks of, of social uh, of, of society. But he did come up with this really interesting, useful idea, I think, of the spectrum between achieved and so-called ascribed identities. That's the, the somewhere people who tend to be you know, usually, you know, most of our society is still a very large minority, if not a majority of people who are lots of well-educated, uh, unlikely anywhere, and they tend to be more rooted. They tend to prefer security and familiarity to, to kind of openness and novelty. I mean, these are obviously huge generalizations. They often don't apply at the kind of individual level, but I think they're useful sort of heuristics for thinking about society. But also, but somewheres tend to have ascribed identities that their identities are based around the things that you can't escape from. You know, you're a you know, northern working class male. You know, if your identity is mainly based on, on, on ascribed things, you tend to have a stronger connection to commitment to, you might say, to the place you come from and the group you belong to. And yeah. therefore, you're much more susceptible to being disturbed when the group you're part of or the place that you come from changes. Uh, and becomes unfamiliar to you, so I think that is you know again you don't have to you don't have to be a, a a nativist to feel that you know extraordinary high numbers of people 
in the UK, this was a few years ago now, which, you know, responded, I think something like 62% of people, you know, were admittedly a slightly leading question, you know, that some people say that, you know, Britain, Britain is not the country it used to be. And, oh, uh, sorry, I've forgotten the exact wording, but so something like that, you know, you get, you know, almost two thirds of the population sort of agreeing to, to things like that because of over rapid change. And I do think this is one of the great failures of modern liberalism is, is to not is to is to denigrate the familiar right you know right so, yeah and of course i think that as you say there 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 is a class element to this in which the increasingly mobile cognitive elite is is tends to share similar value systems and that has sort of congealed over the last several decades and, and sort of culminated in our current notion and i think and 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 that others have not but also within individuals ourselves i mean i think i think of myself as someone who really has a has an achieved identity there was a there was a, a gathering once in which i looked around the room and i saw barack obama not to name drop but there he is he's the talk about an achieved identity this is a very complex third culture kid hawaii africa chicago a Midwestern grandparent. This is someone who's had to create an entire personhood. And he represented, even though, in fact, in my view, Obama was, in fact, pretty middle, mm. middle Western, sort of moderate in so many ways, and someone who had an instinctive feel for people who don't like change and a, and a, and a kind of attempt to understand them, which is lacking in the, in the current. But he represented something. Who is this? Where does someone called Barack Obama come from? And I think, and then I saw, by the way, Samantha Power. I saw Fareed Zakaria. I saw people who are my generation, really, and they're all, we're all composite identities of nationality, of immigration, of, of, of sexual identity, and all the rest of it. But your average person I went to high school with, that hasn't happened. And, 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 and nor do they particularly wanted to happen and to be honest you know i mean there's there's a certain temperament which is often true with smart people cognitively intelligent people that values change diversity more than people who are not in that same cognitive and then almost unknowingly almost unconsciously restructure society so that the assumption is rapid change as opposed to exactly unless they kind of get that and and that they don't understand what people are pushing back on that. And, and when they hear the pushback, what they hear is fascism yeah. in their heads. Yeah. Because they, they don't seem to have any conception that people can be totally normal, nice people, yeah. but it's not a, like change at the yeah. pace it's happening. It's, it's an extraordinary lack of emotional intelligence from a group of people who put quite a big store by emotional intelligence, actually. And I think it does lie behind a lot of political instability. It's, it's, it lies behind at least what we might call legitimate populism. You see it also within communities. You see, for example, African-Americans who are overwhelmingly democratic in a way that other... Mm. But that is, a, that, is a, that is a real identity for all sorts of very good and important reasons. But... It, and so someone like Jim Clyburn in South Carolina, the middle class, or the, the African-Americans who voted for Eric Adams in New York City... They also hear the the somewhere the any the somewhere no the the anywheres talking about critical race theory and and permanent 
entrenchment of white supremacy and the need to defund the police and the need to relax mm. drug laws and all the rest of it. And they hear that's not really who we are either. In other words, what I'm saying is that every particular mm. group, including like gays and lesbians, there are, I, when I write about normie gays and lesbians who would, would never use the term LGBTQIA and don't mm. particularly, aren't particularly fond of the idea of young children who are gender non-conforming being pushed into reversible changes. They're just like, what? Mm. But then mm. are represented in the elites because every gay person in the media and overwhelmingly more gay people than other groups have exactly these achieved identities and are and are committed to certain ideologies and there is a conflict there. You'd have thought that by the now, presented, yeah, yeah. You'd have thought by now people would have got bored with being transgressive. The transgress you know, that there's something rather adolescent about it. I mean that, 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 that this lack of recognition that that you you know you may still feel like a like a kind of rebellious teenager but actually most of society doesn't <laughs> but actually another example i was going to another example of this lack of emotional intelligence which brings us on to a head hand heart theme is that what i call the 1550 problem about higher education so you know we had you know until we we seriously undersupplied higher education in the uk not so much in america america was obviously a pioneer at all levels of education primary secondary and then particularly post-war GI Bill higher education. We were we were way behind the curve compared both to America and much of continental Europe. Uh, it's partly to do with the domination of Oxford and Cambridge. But so when you and I went to university, you know, seven or eight percent of the population did, even as late as the kind of nineteen eighties, probably you know, about fifteen percent. Now it's fifty percent. But that no one gave any thought, you know, when Tony Blair you know, blithely says in 1999, we, we have a target of 50% of school leavers going to university. Nobody seemed to think, what are the other 50% going to feel about it? When 15%, go back to the, the late 70s, 80s, when 15% went, it didn't really matter so much. Okay, so the, the, the clever kids in your school, your town went off to university and you didn't, you know, you went to work in a local factory or office and, and life went on. When 50% go and you don't go, it's a completely different ballgame. Nobody seems to have given one moment of thought to that, to the discomfort that, that people might feel about that. These, uh, are, these are hard to measure, these things, like the feelings yeah, yeah. of people and the way in which certain views of like, if you haven't got a college degree, there's something inherently problematic with you. That when, when Blair and Clinton were like, just get educated, education will solve everything. Mm. Yeah, and it doesn't actually, <clears throat> and 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 there's still a huge amount of things that need to be done in our society which don't require that kind of education, quote unquote education. Yeah, uh, we obviously we we you know we need incredibly clever people to sort out lots of our problems, you know, to sort out climate change and to you know come. I mean, we had a wonderful example of it with the vaccines, you know, for, uh, a few months ago. We we obviously need high intelligence as never before. I mean, despite Despite the fact that you know my head hand heart book is saying we have placed we've given too much reward and respect to just one form of human aptitude, the cognitive analytical kind of exam passing abilities. I'm not for one moment saying that you know high intelligence is not important. It's absolutely vital to the the future of humanity. But we have we have we've forgotten that you know most of the people who go to college are not producing new knowledge. You know, most of the people who go to college are no cleverer than the people who don't go to college. 
And moreover, many of them are going on to do jobs that their non-graduate parents did perfectly happily. So we've really got ourselves into a into a into a mess, I think, with the with the overexpansion. It's slowed down in America partly because of the cost, but but Europe has kind of roared ahead. M- most European countries now have have higher education attendance of of you know close to fifty percent or more than fifty percent. The other thing that does, of course, is it it takes far more people out of where local habitats, puts them into mm-hmm. often bigger cities and those people don't go back. Well, that's particularly so the case in the UK. I mean, it, you know, it's like, also the case in the US. Obviously, yeah. overwhelmingly, this is well, no, well, this has happened now on a grand scale. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, the figures I saw about fifty percent of US college students actually live at home, or at least in their hometown. The the the, the Ivy League universities, obviously, residential, and, and and a lot of the big state universities are as well. But in Britain, it's much. It's one of the reasons why some of these divides are even greater in the UK. Than in the US, that you know, once you've gone to university, 75-80% of kids go to residential universities in the UK. And as you say, you know, many of them don't go back. So, you know, and you're taking, you know, this is this is kind of feeds into the leveling up argument. It, you know, we're, we're we're kind of policy is 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 in a huge conflict with itself. So we sit around in the UK worrying about re- regional inequality. We now have a big, big effort from this government on on leveling up. Because we do have grotesque regional inequalities, and on the other hand, for the last 20, 30 years, we've been encouraging, you know, the brightest, you know, twenty, twenty-five percent of working-class kids from working-class towns like you know the Rotherhams and Mansfields to to leave, and as you were saying, a large proportion never go back, so which, 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 you know, which makes the regional inequality even worse. But um, equally, is it not true, David, that 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 what's happened in the economy in general? is that the work of cognitive elites has been much more rewarded in the last 50 years, say. It just as in terms of what is in supply and what's in demand, that in some ways that the, the nerds, as it were, have finally had their day where they are over-rewarded by the market for what they can do. The coders, the people who are the cognitive engineers of our online world, the people who are the cognitive engineers of, of so much, they... and. But that's simply a fact of the market. It, it's how does one, and that is being valued by the market. No one's issuing a moral judgment here, but it's being valued by the market as more valuable than the nurse who has spent 20 years in the wards and who has an extraordinary skill with human beings and, yeah. and, and also huge uh, clinical uh, skills. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's a market question. And, and it's surely you can't, there's no, the wealth, that wealth inequality is really hard to stop. Okay, well, I, I'm an optimist about this, actually. I think we are in a process, a slow process of self-correction on a lot of these issues. And I think it's been, it may be speeded up a bit by the pandemic. I'll come on to that in a minute. But I think we have reached, so I think a lot of what I'm writing about in Head, Hand, Heart is sort of obvious, like you've been saying. It's one of the most obvious facts about labour market economics, the higher return to education in the last 50 years or so. It's, 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 and, and correspondingly, lower rewards, and lower status for manual, technical, artisanal, caring jobs and so on. Um, and incidentally, we've also seen, so this is going slightly back to what we were talking about earlier, what's also happened is that so many forms of unconditional recognition in our achievement societies have disappeared. You know, the unconditional recognition you get 
from being a religious believer, the unconditional recognition you get from being simply a member of a nation, the unconditional recognition you get from being a member of a family. All of those things have been to some extent eroded. But look, the reason I'm optimistic is because although the the head, hand, heart, the sort of differential reward and status thing is kind of obvious, I think if there's an original theme in my book, it's, it's what I call peak head. We have reached peak head. The system is beginning to realize that we are overproducing the you know, generalist academic students for whom there are no jobs. The, the knowledge economy turns out not to need so many knowledge workers. I mean, if you look at the UK situation, that if you take the top two social classes, professional, managerial, higher and lower, the proportion of the workforce in those top two social classes in the year 2000 was 35%. Last year, I think it was last year or the year before last, it was 37%. So it has increased, but only a tiny bit. There was a huge increase. I and mean, this this is this is a, a really important theme for thinking about social mobility as well. Social mobility is essentially about more room at the top. When you, you talk very interestingly, indeed, with other with other British people on this program about issues of social mobility, which often I think get confused with issues of entry into the elite. Now, the two things overlap, but they are somewhat different. So, you know, if you go back to the late 50s in Britain, around the time I was born, we had a still very, very restricted elite. Anti-Eden's cabinet was 18 white, privately educated men, 12 of whom, including Anthony Eden, went to the school I went to. <laughs> um, it was kind of ridiculous. But at that time, or a few years later, the the professions were massively opening up, partly to do with the expansion of the welfare state, which needed more doctors, it needed more teachers, it needed university teachers, and so on and so forth. So actually, the two things uh, can move in different directions. You can, can So now I think we have a much more open elite. I mean, yeah, we've got, we've got more work to do on that, but it's a lot more open. We've gone back, thankfully, to the, the sort of grammar school proportions from the sort of 50s and 60s proportions at Oxford and Cambridge, for example. It's now sort of 70, 30 state, private. And actually, only 29% of, of all MPs are privately educated. It's much it's it's much smaller number than most people realise. Um, so we, we've got a more open elite. But mobility has slowed down because... The, the, that huge and rapid expansion from the kind of 70s through to the, the 2000s of the professional and managerial class has, 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 has slowed down. And that means that we are now in, uh, what's the guy called Peter Turchill talks about elite overproduction. We're, in, we're right in the heart of elite overproduction. And this creates huge disappointed expectations amongst you know, lots of people, often from where non-university backgrounds, you know, first in their in their family to go to university. Mind you, when you're expanding the university system as fast as we are, almost everyone going to university is the first in their family to go to university. And I do think this lies behind, you know, the, the Bernie Sanders, sort of Jeremy Corbyn, possibly even BLM to some extent. You know, if you're a young black kid and you and you leave university, and you know, you're one of the in the UK, one of the more than more than a third of UK graduates are not in graduate employment 10 years after graduating. If you're a black kid, you've got a kind of a, a racial explanation for that. And, you know, you, you, you may not be, you know, so persuaded by, by the sort of story I'm telling about, you know, essentially, this is not a race issue. This is an elite overproduction issue. 
Meanwhile, but it's true, is it not, that elite overproduction can lead to horrible internecine fights within the elites in which one half are trying to exercise whatever leverage they can over the other. Yeah. It gets worse and worse, and that that has definitely, I think, played a part in polarization in this country. And yeah. definitely, otherwise, sometimes well-intentioned, quote-unquote, diversity efforts become really weapons in an intra-elite civil war in which you you can gain advantage over this person through this and feel okay about it because you're actually advancing social justice as you do it but if you didn't have quite that large number of people in the elite fighting for a still relatively you know naturally somewhat limited space there's going to be some fights which are basically going to be about careers and 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 who can who can prevail yeah, and, and and universities tend to be quite radicalizing institutions. Not not I mean not all students are. are but again, are all you've done though, David, is tell me that the professional intellectual class is kind of stalled. Yeah, it's still true that the market is not valuing. Well, I uh, I, I think it's going to have to. I mean. Because alongside this, we've had... What do you mean the market has to? I mean, behind markets are, are people and, and people's right. preferences, and they do shift. Right. I mean, I think we shouldn't kind of reify the market. And, you know, we have, we've got a huge, huge demand. And, and you're seeing an adjustment. I mean, it's slightly disguised now by the, by the inflation, but you have seen a big rise in incomes right at the bottom. There's a huge demand for the so-called missing middle skills. You know, all of those technicians who maintain all the all the kit that that maintains modern civilization from the kind of power station to 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 our laptops you know it needs people who know how to maintain these you know these these machines and and you know we're not particularly in britain and america we have been we've been ignoring technical education, technical and vocational education. We also, in all of our all rich societies, have a huge crisis of recruitment in the care sector. So mm-hmm. this is going to be, to some extent, self-correcting. I think the pandemic is going to ha- has has helped. You know, you saw the way that the key workers and 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 carers were kind of you know were, were applauded and, and respected. It was kind of like it, it kind of revealed the the sort of hidden wiring of our interdependence on, on people doing pretty basic jobs. Now I I, I know, but one know, one one way in which let's say the market has met this problem so far has been through mass immigration. In other words, if you can just bring new people in to do work really really cheaply, then then you can dilute this. The, the, you can you can weaken the demand uh, of, of these particular jobs. And it's cheaper, just as you can get a bunch of people in Vietnam to just produce another washing machine yeah. than to build a class of people within the country who can repair washing machines so that they don't have to be replaced every five years. So that's, and that seems to me you cannot really move back towards that without some restriction on immigration in those particular terms, and to some extent, some restriction on free trade, that those two things are enabling this process past its ex- natural expiration date. That's that's the problem. I, I agree. America has uh, an even bigger problem than Europe in this respect. You have 7,000 people a day crossing the Rio Grande. Two million I- illegals come in. It's actually, the number's going to go up because it's at some... Trump We're about to have a huge, yeah. huge new wave. No, I, I think this is a problem. And then indeed, you know, I, I'm here in Sweden working on the sort of third of my trilogy, if you like. There was the road to somewhere 
of the anywhere somewhere is the value divides, the educationally based value divides, and the, the the problem of people reacting against the combination of kind of market liberalism and social liberalism, and then the head hand heart, which is about our over, over allocating too much reward to just one form of human aptitude. My, th- my third book that I'm working on here in Sweden at the moment is about how we raise the status of care, both paid and unpaid care in 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 the domestic realm and private realm. And, uh, and that is incredibly important as we as the population gets older and older proportionally. Absolutely. We had a huge demand is coming both but but both because childhood is extended, you know, into early twenty, you know, all the all the kids who went to live with their parents in their uh, and and also to do with the housing crisis, you know, kids are living with their parents right into their early mid twenties, and at the at the other end, you got you got all of us living so much longer, and also because of the family, the family isn't what it was fifty years ago, so a lot of these things would have been done in the family that are now being externalised to the, the public care economy. And we are simply, and I think one of one of the things I've been I want to look at actually is, whether I mean at the moment one of the one of the few uh, bits of immigration that tends to be quite popular is care related immigration. You know, people want people to come in, you know, because you know the, some of this is the is the result of a of a you know, benign liberal development, um, which is that women now have choices that they didn't have two generations ago. And many women have have rejected domesticity, and like men, see all the status and reward and excitement in the public realm, you know, climbing a professional ladder or going into politics or whatever. And that's fine, obviously. And I think that the challenge for for us, sort of, you know, very broadly in the kind of liberal campus, you know, how do you how do you raise the status of care in an era of gender equality? I mean, how do you raise how do you how do you you know, welcome the fact that some women are rejecting the traditional domesticity that that was their role, primary role for thousands of years, without that rejection casting a shadow over the many other women and men who find their main, you know, identity and, and main meaning from domesticity. I think that that is a challenge. Again, a challenge. you're talking about very deep senses of what's valuable in life, and and. It also touches upon what makes humans happy. And to some extent, as you and I may testify personally, the life of the head is working constantly in your brain, outside of your body and outside, is, is, can be very rewarding at a certain level. It can be. And it's increasingly lucrative. But does it actually make you happy unless you have also generated an emotional structure around you that keeps you sane and well balanced and if your body your actual body is not involved in some activity that that appeases its needs too in other words that we are we are complicated creatures but the head hand and heart which I, I love this formula it's a very simple but powerful formula is that is that yeah we need all three and not only do we need all three we need all three in some kind of balance mm. and this is also where i'm i'm a little hopeful because i think of I don't last blow that cup, but I think of my my niece and nephew, um, and and my niece did the usual meritocratic thing, did incredibly well, wanted to be an architect, went to went to arch- graduated in that, went into the local, and just realized she was fucking miserable. What she actually really liked to do was teach, teach kids, and she had the courage to walk away from that and say, "I want to mm. go work in a comprehensive school yeah. and teach twelve well, year olds," yeah. and yeah. she. 
or my nephew who's decided, fuck this, I can code anywhere. I'm going to go live in Cornwall. I'm going to live where I can go surfing most days, even though it's fucking freezing, of course, in Cornwall. But it's as good as you'll get if you're, if you're stuck on that island. And I'm just like, well, that is... And, and, and we I never the, even considered doing that. I had to yeah, get to the, I had yeah. to make I had to get to the top because otherwise I would be a failure. And, and yeah. these kids are beginning to understand that's not what's going to make me happy. Anyway. And I think I think that's so true. And I think we're also getting it, and it's really important that we get it, as it were, from the top of society. You know, the really privileged kids, the affluent kids, who are saying, actually, you know, going to university for three years may may have been the automatic thing, you know, twenty years ago. But actually, I want to go and be an artisanal cheesemaker in Hackney. I don't want to. I don't want to uh, you know, go through that that tedious business and come out with lots of debt and and anyway probably not then get a a brilliant professional job. And I think that is happening more and more. So I, I think there are reasons for optimism. The other thing about but also um, there's a certain amount of there's a certain amount of self esteem that grows from, for example, and and Matthew Crawford, the writer Matthew, is is really has written beautifully about this. Oh, I, love I recommend him, yeah. his books to to readers about. The ability to use your body, your hands, to craft something, even if it's just you know a hand model sculpture or something, or if it if it's it's making tables or chairs or or this over the years that you do it, you finesse it, you become better at it. You just you get a certain amount of self natural self esteem in these projects that are harder to get when you're in some abstract office situation where you're measured every year on your on how many new clients you've managed to bring into but, the but house. more than that andrew he actually says there's more intellectual satisfaction yes, in sorting yes. out some broken exhaust pipe in some antique italian motorbike than in working in policy in washington because he did he's done both you know the logic the kind of deductive powers the imagination the leaps of logic required to you know find out where the bloody problem is on this on this motorbike it's you know it's because actually one of the you know head hand heart are not separate domains obviously you know they will overlap i mean uh, that, that that's and and it's you know indeed with one of the the the, the great well, not great but one of the unfortunate jobs of the future is going to be a dementia nurse you know which is an absolute classic combination of of head and heart i mean in order to be a good dementia nurse you need a lot of book learning to you know, understand the phases of this ghastly dementia illness. But you also need to, you know, the patience of Job or you know, the patience of a good parent to 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 be able to to, to be able to help somebody who's in this in, in that kind of dementia prison. Um, yeah, I mean, just just the process of the usual peeing and pooping that a human being has to go through. If you get to a point where you really can't control that. And yeah. you have to be helped and you have to be cleaned. And these are not, these are very difficult things. They can be especially difficult for a member of your own family to be doing it too. To having someone who has the capacity to come in and help do that, incredibly important. Yeah. And to do that, you know, you know with, with dignity, I mean, it's a highly skilled job. And I think we are going to come around to this realization. Uh, and I think it would help me to, to get back to your immigration point. I think one of the things that would help, despite the fact that this uh, that immigration is quite popular in this area, it's actually rather important to stop immigration in this area to help raise the, the pay and status of these jobs. It'll also be interesting to see whether, uh, and we should be encouraging this, more men go into this area. Perhaps as technology gets more involved in 
in uh, old people's homes and so on as it is in Japan, it will attract more men in. Of course, one of the one of one of the classic problems with care. I mean, there there are there are many reasons why it's undervalued, apart from the historic fact that women have tended to to do most of it in the past, and more recently have, have often, at least in Europe, done it part time as a sort of second household income. But even apart from that, there are problems in how you measure it. I mean, it's a classic externality in economic terms. It's very difficult to sort of capture the the the, the benefits of a lot of care work. It, it, it's also it also suffers from you know, what what's called prisoner of love syndrome. That you know to be a good carer, you have to care for the. So it reduces your bargaining power essentially. But, you know, it, it, you know it, it, yeah. in the in the public obviously we're not talking about domestic care here, but in the public economy, I mean, obviously you know, nurses and teachers do go on strike, but they go on strike relatively seldom. I mean, it's sort of quite a, it's a big deal when they do, and there are lots of other areas of the care economy where you never hear about people going on strike, partly because of the prisoner of love syndrome. So, you know, we've, we've got to help them. <laughs> you know, and, and actually, the Biden administration has been proposing various things in this area. I've been listening to, there's actually a really interesting Marxist feminist called Nancy Folbra. I don't know if she's crossed your radar. No. Um, she, it's worth looking her up. She's, she's just written a book on the rise and decline of patriarchal systems. I mean, it, it all sounds like sort of, me going back to my 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 Marxist twenties, but actually she's she's she she looks at the facts, you know, unlike a lot of Marxists, and she's really interested. As is Claudia Goldin, you know, Claudia Goldin, the sort of feminist economist. She's very interested on. What on is, can you spell the last name of the first person you referenced? Folbre, F O L B R E, Nancy Folbre. She gave uh, yeah. She, there's lots of her stuff on lots of. Videos and how does that? Talking. How does how does that impact? This question. She she thinks that the women are going to be better rewarded in future because of the decline of that kind of system. Well, I mean, she she points to the kind of the, the reasons for the undervaluing of care to do to do with the, the the measurement issue, the prisoner of love issue. She's very very big on GDP. You know, there's this coalition of market economists and a certain kind of feminist who. Who don't regard what goes on in the private realm as as worth counting, you know the feminists because they think it's happening under patriarchal duress, the market economists because money isn't involved. But actually, they we there are it's very easy to work out, well not easy, but it's possible to work out how uh, you know to to measure the amount of care that is taking place. And of course, when when women have moved wholesale from the domestic sphere into the public economy. Lots of things that used to happen don't happen any longer. We've only ever looked at one side of the ledger on this, and you know. So this is one of the reasons so why. Unpack that for me. What what things don't happen that well, used to happen? Well, so so when you had you know one parent staying at home, looking after the kids, looking after the older people, if they were middle class, they were often running local associations of one kind or another. There was a whole kind of world that women were you know were, that they were active and producing. They were. And when either full-time or part-time that woman moves into the public economy, a lot of those things stop happening. So people can feel that people are richer in money terms, but actually often feel poorer because of the because of what you know, but now in most most of us in in even in rich Western countries, you need two incomes or at least one and a half to have a decent standard of living. So your income's going up, but actually you're you're feeling 
more kind of you know rushed and there's never any time to do anything and the things that we value most often not being done or are being done in a in a, in a great rush and children are suffering from it as well that's uh, why when people when people are asked you know how's your financial situation they say fine they they say well how happy are you and they're like miserable yeah yeah <laughs> it's, well, look, this is and it's partly how we've structured the world i mean i, I it's also as I, as i said before that that actually being a great teacher, for example, even though I always found it kind of tragic that every year these kids would disappear and you'd still stay there. But what they bring to the world and the impact that they have on, on students throughout their whole lives is incredible. Mm -hmm. and, and I would also argue that the teacher themselves gets huge amount of meaning, value, self-esteem in that transfer in that process and and you're right they are a prisoner of love in that sense they would do it anyway but they deserve it's very difficult to measure yeah, yeah. one of the ironies here is that actually i mean i want i mean although my book was seen as one of the sort of critics of meritocracy along with the sandel book that came out a while ago in the markovitz book I, i'm i'm sort of saying something slightly different i'm saying it's not so much meritocracy itself and and clearly we want even Michael Young, you know, wanted, you know, the, the, the best people in the in the top jobs. I mean, you know, you don't want to be operated on by someone who's failed their surgery exams. I mean, you know, we, we want meritocratic selection for jobs, particularly top jobs. We, we don't want a, merit, a meritocratic society in which a few people win all the prizes and everyone else feels like a failure, obviously. But, but I mean, the problem with yeah. meritocracy is, is the kind of what the word you put in front of it. I mean, my, my problem with meritocracy is the cognitive meritocracy. We just need a wider appreciation of other skills and virtues. And that actually, you might say, in the care economy, for example, we want to, we want more meritocracy. So there are, you know, anyone who's been to a, a care home or, or a hospital for more than five minutes, you can, you know, if you, particularly if you've got your elderly parents there, you can see that. Some nurses are really, really good. Some are average and some are really quite poor. I mean, they'll all be on the same wage. That actually, in some ways, we need more meritocracy. It's part of the raising the status of things is being able to measure. But the problem is, it, how, how do you measure that? You know, geriatric nursing in most hospitals tends to be, tends to have the lowest status uh, amongst all mm. the nursing disciplines. Uh, and, uh, and it's partly, I think, because it's so hard to, you know, if you're just come off an eight or 10 hour shift in a geriatric ward, you know, and, and a really good nurse will have just made the lives of all those old people on that ward slightly less miserable. Slight, slightly, she'll usually be a she, but she'll have burnt them up. Such, but, this is a lovely way of putting it. <laughs> it's a very English way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> the but, one's, one's main goal in life is to make it slightly less miserable than it might otherwise <laughs> be. I, um, there's, that's the spirit, but I, but I, I understand what you're saying, and, it, and I, you know, it's caring for people with dementia is particularly tough because they're incapable of really expressing their gratitude that that they might even forget who you are the next day. That that's a particularly tough one. It requires, and some of this does require a sense of your own self worth, independent of what society yeah. tells you, yeah. and and. This brings me to another dynamic of this, which is the collapse of, of religious faith and particularly Christian faith, which said, which insisted to even those of us who were incredibly gifted, there is nothing better about you than someone who has no education in the world. Nothing. Because we are all equal in the eyes of God. And in fact, you're probably a horrible person. 
that your ambition and your rich wealth and your success has probably blinded you to the pain and weakness of others that you you are you're not a good you the, what the world values is not what we value and even though of course christians living in everyday life had that conflict constantly and and were, were also drawn to those meritocratic or those capitalistic virtues they still were told on a weekly basis that that this was nothing that what mattered was how you cared about other people that what what we treasured and valued about people was that, was their moral worth their capacity mm. to love mm. and give and you remove that from from literal weekly or recitation and and sooner or later you believe that there is no other thing to value than what the society as a whole is valuing so, and this also becomes you know so so this also becomes a trap for people in who are represent a small minority of people that mm. that, that 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 you seek your own self-worth through solely through the approval or otherwise of others or the affirmation of your worth by others or the validation of your worth by others as opposed to you have self-worth because you are a child made in the image of God. Mm. And, and that's, that's also been a rather cruel irony of our, our new modern world, that it has mm. removed... Unconditional, of unconditional recognition. And you know, yes. the, the brightest and the best has, have taken over from the decent and hardworking you know, as the kind of slogans of choice from, from politicians. Some professions, like I think of policemen, for example, which historically would always command respect, mm. have been demonized in ways that are really kind of a staggering to me. I do and think that was another thing, that moment in 2020 when people who had been educated at Ivy League schools were screaming in a demo against a cop who was simply policing the demo that he was a mass-murdering racist fascist. That moment, and the cop often a minority cop, had to stand there and take that abuse from these, these wealthy white woke people. Mm. That was a moment for me. That was a real moment of, of I see you now. I can see where you, who you are and where you're coming from. And it's not pretty. I think the religion point is so important. I mean, I think when, you know, when we're talking about polarization, I think we can overdo the social media thing. Uh, I mean, social media has clearly exacerbated it. But I think we get you know, we can get into a bit of an echo chamber talking about echo chambers. But I think you know if you put social media plus mass higher education, mass higher education does tend to create more extremists. It tends to produce more polarization between those who go and those who don't go. Uh, and 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 people who go through higher education tend to be more ideological in the sense that. You, you almost feel your duty as an educated person to have a sort of consistent worldview. You know, most ordinary people don't have a consistent worldview, and that's one of the great things about ordinary people. You know, they take a bit from left here, a bit from right there, which is what you know. I eventually matured into that. You know, having and I love the Daniel. You know, the Daniel Bell political credo. He was asked sometime in the 1980s for this political credo, and he said, I, "I'm a social democrat in economics. I'm a liberal in politics, and I'm somewhat conservative." in social and cultural matters. And that, that's kind of where I found myself a few years ago. And it's actually, it's the kind of hidden majority in our societies. I mean, if we'd, you know, and for various contingent historical reasons, neither parties of the right or left sort of adopted that combination. But if they had done in the 60s and 70s, I mean, the left went off 
you know, into kind of antinomian directions in the 60s and 70s and, and never really came back and, and sort of has been doubling down on that. And the right went free market briefly, although it's now come back. I mean, I think there is, you know, the, the famous saying that it's easier for the right to move left on economics than it is for the left to move right on culture. I think that does stand. I mean, I think it, it's easier for parties of the central right to adopt that that kind of Dan, Daniel Bell. But being family. right or left on culture is a relative thing because the culture changes. Yeah, yeah. And, and in general, if we want to say broadly left, it has changed quite dramatically for the better in many single... But, at, but the trouble is that no one, no one who has helped make that balance says, well, now we're done. Or, yeah, fine, we're good yeah, now. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it, the, the, the stakes are always upped again. Yeah. Not only do you have to have, for example, protections, good, important protections, not to discriminate against transgender people, we have to ensure that 70-year-olds who are thinking that they might be the opposite gender can be put on a fast track to sex changes. In other words, that there's, a, and that now is the criterion for whether you are a hater or a supporter of trans people, which is absurd. But that's where we're at. And, and I don't think, to be honest with you, it can be, it's that hard for liberals to moderate on culture. I think they could quite easily, I think they could quite easily say, let's not get involved with whether we want to be a white nation or a non-white nation. Let's just focus on the fact that we need to tolerate and moderate the pace of immigration so we mm. can better integrate people. And let's protect and make sure we have in the forefront of our minds the interests of regular native-born citizens at the same time. And and so that we don't start acting out in ways that are completely alienating to regular human beings. And I just think it's also hard to explain to many people in the elite the, the value of the non-intellectual life. Mm, mm. Because it's so structural in our own heads yeah. that we can't imagine a world that is more meaningful outside of it. Or even more valuable outside of it. Can and, we blame? And, can we blame Christianity partly for this? That I mean, you know, when, when I talk about head sure, heart, go ahead. <laughs> pe people often say, "Oh, but this has always been the case, hasn't it? We've 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 allocated much greater respect to the kind of the abstract, the rational. You know, whether it's Plato or or you know Christianity with its with its suspicion of the embodied. You know, the embodied is the source of 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 weakness and 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 lust and i mean well that that's a very protestant view <laughs> and i i think catholicism is all about the body it's all it's all about nature and our oneness with our our physical selves well, and, and and but that's obviously a yeah, yeah. A, a subcurrent of Christianity. certainly there's a there's a puritanical ascetic anti it's all in it's more in augustine and paul than i think that in jesus mm. but mm. but no i think i think there's a and this is i think that the key element of christianity that that works is is simply every week have you, what have you done this week for other people how mm. are, you, are you taking care of your family have you have you been kind to your friends did you meet that stranger and did you treat that stranger with dignity or did you have preconceived ideas about that person did you in all these things that I'm, that when yeah. I went to mass every week, you'd be asked, "Have you done this? Have you done that?" I never always thought I was worth shit. Mm. <laughs> always, the, uh, maybe that helps. Uh, I, I was, rules. Yeah, yeah, because I was a miserable, evil, 
sinful fucker and not because i was gay because i was a selfish miserable fucker mm. and, and mm. looked after myself before i looked after others etc cetera, etc cetera. and we haven't replaced that, none that. of this grounded me a little bit we haven't grounded replaced it we haven't replaced it i mean you no. know humanism had a very good has had a very good critique of religion but it's not it's not been able to replace it you know all the rituals you know hg wells invented all sorts of kind of humanist rituals didn't he in the early 20th century it's it's not, none of them what worked am, what am i here for you know in 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 industrial America, the little towns and cities across the country, they were there to make boots or they were there to make steel or they were there to produce motor cars. And, so, and now that those things have disappeared, the very meaning of their communities has been taken out from under them. And that is just a very hard psychological thing to get your head around. If you don't have religion to fall back on, mm. you, you will, I think, fall back on things like opioids. You will, I think, drop out. You will end up looking into a computer screen seventy, you know, seven hours a day as you as you play your games, and that that this stuff that ones the withdrawal of people into themselves, and also into drugs is partly a function of this absence of public meaning for them, and a place a dignified place within that public meaning in which they actually matter. And the decline of religion has sort of gone hand in hand with the decline mm -hmm. or relative decline of the family. Which is why mm -hmm. I think it's so important to, and, 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 and an optimistic point again about the pandemic. I mean, I think the whole working from home thing is sort of almost bringing back the old cottage industry, and it, and it makes it easier to combine domestic work and public economy work, particularly for women, you know, who are still, you know, tend to be the primary care of young children and indeed of elderly people. And I think you know anything we can, anything that public policy can do to, to help to help that, to help raise the status of, of, of the domestic realm in an era of gender equality is... is, is well, in some ways, like the Mother's Day, for example, is one of the kind of a, a moment in which we do that, right? In which we acknowledge yeah. the unspoken, often unarticulated, but incredible importance of mothers to their children and to their families. We also need to do it with Father's Day as well. The The... the the extraordinary challenge and virtues of fatherhood and, and the importance of it. Again, uh, religion used to do that. We don't have anything to do. And, and you, it's just the fact that you devalue that. Or if you start talking about pregnant people or people with uteruses and never use the word mother, can't use the word women, you are effectively devaluing certain ways of thinking and that have proved incredibly beneficial to human society. And again, that's something that my own faith absolutely goes on and on about. I mean, the family is endless praise and, 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 mm. and celebration of it, More, I think over the top, but nonetheless, it does matter. David, it has been really fun chatting with you. It's, 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 it's spun by. Thank you for joining. Thank you for adding your voice to this conversation. I really do want to recommend to readers the book Head, Hand, Heart, The Struggle for Dignity and Status. In the 21st century, it's it's it really really it, it alters the way you think about certain things, about certain professions, about the balance in our society, especially for those of us and and you know, I know who you are. We we all know who we are. The people listening to this show, we're all up in our brains so much, and finding a way to get out of that, finding a way to get back into our bodies, get into our families, out in our communities. It will make us happier. 
It will. Um, we've, we've got things out of kilter, and and I do think there are some self-correcting mechanisms at work. You know, pay is rising at the bottom. There are aspects of the pandemic, things like I was just talking about, the kind of almost the return of cottage industry. I think, and and the, the, just the huge future demands of care will absolutely demand a, an upward revaluation of care. I, I think that one of the struggles will be to make to upwardly revaluate both in the public economy and in the home. And I think that that would be partly a, a bit of kind of ideological tussle. I, I, Not I, only that, but if if a party of the left or centre-left were to move into this area and to say, these are the values we espouse, and to affirm these, we're also going to address the question of immigration and the question of free trade so that we are clearly also trying to help you before we're helping everyone else in the world. That would be incredibly powerful. And if the left does not do that, this is what I'm scared of, we are going to have, especially in this country, truly dangerous, truly dangerous illiberal reactionary parts of the right that, that will take this over and do terrible things with it if we're not careful. Well, uh, I hope you're proved wrong on that. But uh... I wish. I just, <laughs> I just look at the polling and I look at what Biden is doing and I'm, I'm just like, Jesus Christ. It... it, it it, it it feels, it just feels in that. In, and then we're getting off topic, but it feels just it definitely fifty percent, more than fifty percent likely that the next president is Donald Trump, and more than fifty percent likely. What about the guy in Florida? Isn't he? Again, it depends. But but Trump's. I mean, maybe we can pray. Maybe DeSantis will 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 get a following, and Trump will not. But I, I don't. I can't see it right now. I, I think I know. I know. I want to see that. But DeSantis himself is also not exactly a conciliatory, unifying, or moderate conservative. He's 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 an illiberal mm. populist whose extremes can get really scary at times. If it's him and Biden, or if it's him and Harris, I think it's the contest. Anyway, David, we, we we're gossiping mm. now. <laughs> but that's my feeling about American politics. It's very it's 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 that the the administration that we currently have is absolutely heading fast towards an iceberg and and there's no one to replace the captain or sub-captain that's the mm. other thing it's it's the, you can't see past biden and harris i can't I, mean, um, I, I think maybe america and europe are kind of diverging i mean i, I i'm sort of shocked and amazed by some of the things i read from sensible people about how america is on the verge of civil war i mean i think that is an exaggeration but but uh, it's it seems to be not a, a very extreme one as it were uh, I mean, I think Europe, I mean, on, on my pandemic optimism points, I think apply much more to Europe than, alas, they do to America, where, where the pandemic seems to have divided more than it's brought people together. I think to some extent in Britain and other European countries, I think, it, well, it's been this odd combination of a kind of conservative moment in some ways in that it, it's kind of willy-nilly reinforced the family, whether people liked it or not. It's been a very national moment, you know, even in, you know, the, the international organisations have had very little, you know, the EU didn't play a big role and so on. It was, everybody looked to their their own national governments um, for, for good and ill, but it's, so it's conservative in that sense, but it's also been very social democratic, even to some extent. It also basically froze immigration. Yeah. Which is yeah. something that people don't yeah. talk about that, that yeah. often. The, the, the one reason we're going to have a huge wave is because it was pretty much stopped for yeah. a couple of years there. Anyway. Well, David, thank you for joining us. Th you, thank you very much for inviting me. Um, I've been and, seeing you. He's in, Ups, he's in Uppsala, Sweden, and oh, 
Yeah, I don't know. It's like probably what time of day is it there now? It's it is now five past ten, uh, and it's the actually, sun. And it's still and quite it's light still outside. Lighter. Yeah. I can see the light outside. Yeah, that's fantastic. It's a lovely um, place. I, I should say thank you to the government department at Uppsala University for inviting me here. <laughs> well, it's I, I miss those very late Northern European summer evenings yeah. where they just I, seem to go on forever. I've just, I've, I was actually just in a university town in America, um, in Austin, and I'm sort of expecting it to be a bit like Uppsala or Oxford and Cambridge, but it's just like fucking great downtown and and motorways everywhere. Yes. That, actually, um, that's I, America. I went to the graduation ceremony of my partner's youngest son. It's, it's a, a liberal arts university in Austin. It wasn't, I think it's actually maybe a former Catholic college or still vaguely Catholic, St. Edward's. Hmm, my, I haven't well, the, heard of it. The, the ceremony was, I mean, all of the speeches were kind of like, you know, go forth and be a social justice warrior. I mean, that is what everybody was saying from the stage. I uh, think the radicalization of especially elite private campuses, the way they have been completely turned into activist factories. It's quite shocking. Apparently they do this at lots of universities. They play, as they, as they, as they process in, they play land of hope and glory. You know, oh, well, yeah. Uh, no, that's, not, well, that's a totally different. You, you, that's a complete cultural yeah. misreading. It, it doesn't mean that. Well, but it's still Edward Elgar's Land of Hope and Glory. <laughs> and the funny thing is they then play next after it, they play the Star Spangled Banner, which was written in 1812, one of the kind of few successful moments in the, in the small war where we which with their ass or your ass, as you're now an American. Um, <laughs> and so, so that is kind of written against, that's sort of written against us, the Star Spangled Banner. And it, and, but, it, but it comes after our great, one of our great sort of national flag waving things. It's really weird. <laughs> well, it is for you. It's, it did make sense. Everything makes sense to the American. That, that, okay, well. I, ha I had that experience myself. <laughs> I got to know that it just means something completely different over here. And I, yeah. I feel I'm just, I'm amazed they had uh, a single graduation. Didn't they have graduation ceremonies for different oppressed groups? Oh, they, they had that too. They had one and then they had the separate ones. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's just it's the, awful. Yeah. It's just awful. The fragmentation. We will be back. Well, Shortly, we have a great lineup. I'm particularly looking forward to Jamie Kerchick talking to him about his new book, Secret City, which is a wonderful account of gay Washington in the before Stonewall and a little bit afterwards, up to the 90s, but really about gay life, gay politics, the struggles, the unknown and often ignored civil rights movement that occurred long before Stonewall. It's a great book and we'll be having a, a really fun discussion where we take the podcast out actually we're going to do it in a in an actual room with an audience so that'll be fun that'll be our first taking the podcast on the road again there were no ads on this i'm not reading you ads for the lawnmowers or my latest mortgage deal the only reason we can do that is because we ask you to subscribe so please subscribe to the Dishcast and to the weekly dish that keeps this coming ad free direct from us to you and we'll see you next week. Thanks so much for listening.